My name is Tyler Holder. If you have your Bible, let me encourage you over to Luke chapter 14. Um, I am our pastor of men's and college ministry here at Gospel City. And it's so cool to see how our church here in this cornfield in northern Indiana is affecting change throughout the world. So last week and the previous week, we were engaging in unreached people groups and training missionaries in Africa. Six days from now, we have a group of 17 men that will be leaving to go and spend a week on the island of Puerto Rico to help rebuild. And little did we know, six months, seven months ago, when we were planning this trip, that there would be a series of earthquakes. So now the need is even greater. And as our men go, I would just ask and encourage you to pray for them, encourage them. If you have somebody or know somebody that is going on that trip, make sure you are encouraging them this week. As you find your way to Luke 14, I want to and just begin this morning by just really confessing something to you that has been an issue, a problem in Janelle and I's life for quite some time now. And uh, it centers around um, really what I would call a, a prime problem. We have been inoculated to in-store shopping um, due to our affinity for Amazon Prime. How many of you would say you also deal with, we're going to start a prime problem anonymous club here. And, and really what, what happens when we do this is we just really buy things we don't need because as I'm perusing my app, I, I convince myself that I need what I'm seeing. And, and really this happened for me, I, I kind of started to notice about last Christmas, my son Jax was six years old at the time. And as I'm sitting there going through my Amazon app on my phone, I stumble across a lightning deal. Now lightning deals are even worse than the normal low price because you have the timer that's ticking down. So I got 15 minutes and 38 seconds to make this decision. But then it goes even worse because they give you a bar of how many of the items are available and I'm just stressed beyond max. So I'm sitting, I'm like, okay, I found a Christmas gift for Jack. So I bought my six-year-old son a BB pistol without talking to my wife um, or really reading anything about it because the time was going and it was clicking down and I had to get it quick. I had to get it quick. Two days later, it shows up and I get the package and I open it and I'm excited because I want one. And then I, I hope Jax will be excited. And then I read the suggested age for this toy for my six-year-old son was 13. And I thought to myself, that's strange. He's not 13. And then I started to think, I wonder what Adelaide will feel like when she gets hit by a BB. I wonder how mad I'll be when I get hit by a BB. So because I I have a prime problem, I just returned it, free returns, right? And, and for my wife, I, I think her realization came maybe a little bit later than mine. And, and I think it was when John, our, our mailman, um, came to our home. And as my kids ran out to meet him, as they do often, John just chuckled. And <laughs> like, what's so funny, John? Oh, I already delivered all of your mom's shoes for this week. Don't worry. And in my mind, I'm thinking, how much do you pay attention to what we buy? Like, you, you know that my wife buys 20 pairs of shoes every other week so that they can arrive. And, and there's just, you know, we just kind of have a little problem in our family. And, and I think our prime problem centers around really two words, and, and it's free returns, right? <laughs> we, we purchase things we don't need because we know that at any point we can return it. And, and what's happened for us and our families is we've stopped counting the cost of things. I just don't, I don't look anymore at the cost. I just make sure it has a free return. And here in Luke 14 and verses 25 through 35, what we're gonna see is, is we're gonna see Jesus addressing that same type of issue. And it's not a prime issue with Jesus, really. It's an affection issue with Jesus. 
And, and what Jesus is going to show us today is that the, the issue is, is that we've considered discipleship to Jesus, being called his disciple, something that we can try out, something that we can test or, or toy around with because we viewed his ultimate radical call to follow him as optional. And the reality is, is that there's no return policy on our relationship with Jesus. That a call to be his disciple a call to follow him will cost us something. And this morning, as we look at Luke 14, we're going to examine the costs of discipleship. So today, as we jump into these last 10 verses, what we're going to do is we're going to remind ourselves of a few definitions. We're going to look at our kingdom principle for this parable today. And we're going to lay out before ourselves three characteristics of what it means to be a disciple. But before we do any of that, I'd love to pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that your word declares to us that it has the power of life. And that, Father, your word can transform and change hearts. So, Lord, I do pray today that as we look at your word and examine what it has to say, that your word would impact us. That your word would change hearts. That you would open eyes and ears to see and to hear the beauty that is the gospel. So, Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we began a, a new series entitled Kingdom Parables, and, and we began our series by defining for each other what a parable is. And I want to remind us of that this morning because Jesus is, again, going to teach us in parables. What we said was that a parable is Jesus using stories and pictures from everyday life to help us see his heart and his ways. So today, Jesus is going to tell us a parable centered around discipleship, what it means to be a disciple. So instead of just going and assuming that we all have a grasp of the word disciple, I, I wanted to draw back into our minds a sermon that we heard in September, where Pastor Trent started our ministry year and defined for us what a disciple is. And a disciple is one committed to following the ways and practices of Jesus by engaging in transformative learning and living. The reality is, is that a disciple isn't somebody that's focused on self-improvement. They're not focused on themselves at all. They're focused on Jesus. That there's not two different types of Christian. There's not a remedial Christian and a disciple. If we're followers of Jesus, we are disciples. And this morning, Jesus will show us what being a disciple costs. So I hope you found your way to Luke 14, starting in verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him, against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So this morning as we look at these verses, what I hope we'll see is this simple kingdom principle that disciples count the cost and consider a life following Jesus more valuable than anything else. That disciples count the cost and consider a life following Jesus of more value than anything else. And to illustrate that, we're going to look at three characteristics of a life of a disciple. The first characteristic that we're going to see is found in verses 37 through, or I'm sorry, 27 through 32. And it's simply this, that a disciple counts the cost of following Jesus. Notice what verse 27 says. It says, now, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost? Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read scripture, I, I get confused. And, and as I read, I, I ask questions as I read. So this week, as I'm reading Luke 14 and preparing to preach through this text, I'm asking the question, if Jesus is telling me that I need to consider or count the cost, then, then what are the costs of following him? Does his word tell me what the costs are that I should consider? And I found my answer in verse 27. I found three distinct costs that Jesus shows us. The first is simply this, that we must bear our own cross. Notice what it says. It says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. When we bear our own cross, we recognize and realize that it will cost us our life to follow him. That a call to Jesus is a call to die to our old sinful life and be raised to life with Jesus. Disciples of Jesus see this invitation to bear their cross as an invitation to reject a life focused on self-interest and self-fulfillment and rather enter into a life fulfilling the interests of Jesus. The word that Jesus uses here in verse 27 for bear is this word that carries with this idea of something that's heavy or weighty that we lift and carry. We're walking under pressure. And as I thought about that, what I began to realize is that each and every one of us, if we are a disciple of Jesus, we each have a distinct pressure, a distinct cross that we must bear. A cross that centers in rejection or humiliation, a cross that will cause someone to mock or ridicule. Bearing a cross is not something that's looked at as joyful or exciting or fun, but as a disciple of Jesus, he sets out before us this first cost and shows us that we should be willing to even give our lives if it so be demanded. So when you consider the costs of following Jesus, have you considered what it will look like what it would look like for you to be ridiculed as you walk the halls of your school for following Jesus. What it will look like for you to be mocked at the Christmas table with your family around you because your parents don't understand the life you've committed yourself to. What it will look like to have friends and coworkers, brothers and sisters to just cast you aside because they don't know why you have been so changed. Bearing your cross is a cost of being Jesus' disciple. Have we counted it? Have we realized it? Have we done it faithfully? 
The second thing that we see there in verse 27, it's not just that we should bear our own cross, but it's simply this, that we should come after him. Following Jesus, counting the cost, will help us to see that following him costs us our autonomy. To be a disciple of Jesus means that we're following in his footsteps. Our life is not our own. We rely upon Jesus to show us how we should live, act, move, and have our being. It is Jesus that we find our identity in now, no longer the things of this world. When you see there in Luke 14, 27, when he says, come after me, the word come is in the present tense, which means that it has this idea that it's action that's begun with no end in sight. So it's not just that I've arrived when I've repented of my sins and placed my faith and trust in Christ as Lord and Savior once. It's that each and every moment of each and every day, I take a step in obedience to him because I know and I realize that the end goal is worth every hard step. This past August, Pastor Tyler Downing and I had an opportunity to go to the American Southwest. And we were in Southern Utah at Zion National Park. And as we are hiking through this park, man, we are taking step after step after step. Now we're not the fittest men in the room by any stretch of the imagination. He more so than I, more fit, less fit. That's what I meant by that, um, right? But, but as we're taking steps, we, we took over 14 miles of steps in that day. And we came to this moment in our day when we were getting a trail up this trail called Angel's Landing. What more fitting for two pastors to hike? And at the beginning, we see this huge sign and the sign kind of warns us all about it. Like how many people have died on it? Like when you should start it? They say you should start it early afternoon. So we started it early evening. So instead of 2.30 in the afternoon, we started at five. And as we're hiking up this trail, there were quite a few moments when our hearts were beating 160, 170, 190 beats per minute, we just felt like, man, we just wanted to stop. And we kind of rounded a bend and we came to what we thought was the top. I mean, we were excited. I was excited because then I could stop. I'm done. I've arrived. And I'm looking and I'm looking and then we see in the distance what seems to me like a very long ways away, these two young guys that we had kind of been jockeying back and forth on the trail and they're, they're, they're continuing their hike. It was at that moment where we had to make a decision because um, we weren't at the top of Angel's Landing. Will we continue to take step after step after step or will we stop? And here's what we chose. We chose to continue on that trail. We chose to take another step and another step and another step. And as we came to the top of Angel's Landing and what spread out before us was a beautiful picture of valleys and color, God's creation. We continued taking steps because we knew that the end result would be worth it. And what Jesus is inviting us to, and this is a picture of what it looked like at the top of Angel's Landing that day. What Jesus is inviting us to, he's inviting us to continue taking steps after him because we must see and acknowledge that the end result is better and worth it. He's trying to capture this idea that the gospel is a message that's extended to all and he's inviting us to come after him, to take step after step after step because we recognize and realize that a life following Christ is worth every moment that we have to bear a cross. It's worth every trial, every pain, and every joy. The gospel is an invitation for you to come after Jesus, but please don't miss what he's saying. He, he isn't inviting us to a gospel message that only saves us from hell. He's inviting us to a gospel message that saves us for a life in his kingdom. 
So the gospel, it's an exclusive invitation from the creator of the universe for you and I to acknowledge our sin before a holy God. It's an exclusive invitation from the creator of the universe to rely upon the sacrifice of his perfect son for your sin and for, your, for mine. It's an invitation from the creator of the universe to repent and believe and place our faith and trust in Christ because he is better, he is greater. But it's an invitation for us not just to stop there, it's an invitation for us to follow, to come step after step after step. We must be continually coming after him. To believe the gospel is to give up our autonomy towards sin and to follow in the footsteps of Jesus as the ultimate determining factor of how we live. We, we use words kind of uniquely in our language, and, and here in Luke 14, Jesus says the same thing. Uh, did you pick up on the word that he used? The word that he used was follow. We all grasp and understand what follow means, right? Like if I were to tell you, man, follow me, I'm gonna show you the best thing on earth, you wouldn't start that journey by staying still, right? You don't follow somebody on the interstate by pressing the gas or pressing the brake. You follow them by pressing the gas. You make a decision to have action. That's what Jesus is inviting us to in Luke 14 as a disciple. Consider the cost. The cost of coming after me, of following me, is of far more value than anything you could do on your own. Let me invite you to come follow me. And as we do, I wholeheartedly believe that our homes will be different, that our schools will be different, that our workplaces and communities and our neighbors will see things differently because of the decision we've made as a disciple to believe God at his word and to come after him. The third thing that we see when we think about counting the cost is found in the parable Jesus tells us of the construction and the war. And notice that he tells us that we should desire these things, we should count the costs, we should sit down first and deliberate. So a cost of following Jesus is to desire and count the costs. Luke makes it clear that a decision to follow Jesus must be made consciously with full awareness of what we are doing. We must consider what is happening. Notice he says that a man desired to build and he sits down and counts the cost of what it will do, what it will cost him to complete the action. He begins by showing us that there must be a desire present. And that desire leads us to consider the cost, to sit down, literally to take a step back and look at what's before you. So today, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then can I invite you to sit down, to take a step back and survey what is being placed before you. Because he desires you. And if you are a follower of Jesus, can I invite you to take a step back from the busyness that you occupy yourself with, that I occupy myself with, and consider what Jesus has set before us. Do we sit down and consider what he is calling us to? Discipleship to Jesus, it takes, it takes consideration. It takes deliberate counting of the cost, a resolve that as you are invited to follow Jesus, you are committing to him wholeheartedly. And as Luke is writing, he's writing to remind believers about the commitment they've made, based out of desire, made after sitting down and counting the cost, and committed to a deliberate coming after him. 
Now, if you're like me, when I read Luke 14, I, I began to think discipleship is impossible. To be a disciple of Jesus where I count the cost, where I bear a cross, where I come after Jesus continually, where I have this desire and I've sat down and I've realized, I've analyzed what's in front of me, it, it seems impossible to me. But the point that Jesus is making is not that discipleship is something only a few can pursue. The point that he's making is that he wants us to know what a relationship with him looks like. Jesus is having the DTR with you far before DTR is defining the relationship for those older than me and, and way younger than me, right? Jesus is defining his relationship with you far before you've ever committed to him. And as a disciple of his, he puts before you his expectation. Will you consider and count the cost? Will you take him at his word? So today, as you hear what Jesus is laying before us, just in this first characteristic of being a disciple, can I ask, have you considered the cost? Have you considered the cost? Have I considered the cost of following Jesus? And man, I want us to realize that discipleship to Jesus, nobody is an overnight success. This is a process, a continual taking steps after him, but we should be characterized more by the steps we take in following Jesus and less by the steps we take away from him. Are we counting the cost? Are we weighing Jesus's expectations against our actions and seeking to orient our lives to be obedient to him? Are we counting the cost? The second characteristic that we see here today as we look at Luke 14 of a disciple is simply this, is that a disciple allows nothing to distract them. Look at verses 25 and 26. Now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And look at verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Notice the setting that Jesus is in. It's different than the setting we saw last week. Last week, we saw Jesus chilling at the house of a Pharisee eating lunch. He's surrounded by religious leaders last week. This week, we see him on a journey and great crowds are accompanying him. Jesus always had a knack for drawing crowds. And if you read the Gospels, you'll see that every time a crowd surrounds Jesus, he pauses, turns, and presents to them the cost of following him. Here in Luke 14, the cost of following Jesus that he presents is found in verse 25 and 26. Notice he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Man, talk about a bold statement. A statement that I kind of bristle at a little bit. I don't know if you do. Do you bristle when you read scripture? Do you understand the word bristle? It might be a southern word. It's kind of you just get, get fidgety, right? You're like, man, how, how does this reconcile with what I know Jesus to be? Didn't he tell me in the great commandment that the greatest thing I should do is love the Lord my God with all my heart, mind, body, and strength and love my neighbor as myself? So if I'm to love my neighbor as myself, then why are you telling me that I should hate those around me? We misunderstand what Jesus is saying sometimes. Here in Luke 14 and verse 25 and 26, the word that he uses for hate is a word that only Jesus uses in all of the gospels except one occasion somebody else uses it. 
It's a word that literally means the antonym of love. But Jesus uses it in such a way here in Luke 14 like you and I would use the word hate. Do you know that I hate mustard and I hate murder? But I hate murder a little bit more than mustard. Do you know that I love tacos and love my wife, but I love my wife a little bit more than I love tacos? Right, we, we use the word the same just like he does. What Jesus is saying here is not that we have disdain or anger towards those around us. What he's telling us is that our affections for him should exceed the affections we have for those around me. Our affections for him should exceed the affections we have for our own selves. He's placing before us a choice. Whom will we esteem? Whom will we have greater affection for? He says in a little more of a positive light in Matthew chapter 10, he says a very similar thing. He says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is driving at the heart of our affections because he understands that what we have affections for, that is what we will uphold. So let me ask, do we have greater affections for Jesus than those around us? Do I care more about offending Jesus or offending those around me? Do I seek the approval of Jesus or my wife, my husband, my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister, my mother, my father? Am I allowing relationships to distract me from my pursuit of Christ? He progresses from verses 25 and 26 down to verse 33. Notice what he says. He says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. He declares to us that if we're not willing to bid farewell to what we have, to say goodbye, to renounce, to turn away from the material things in this world, then we cannot be his disciple. And I want to be super clear here. What Jesus didn't just say is that a disciple of his will have nothing. That's not what Jesus just said. Please read the Bible again. It says, if you don't have a willingness to renounce all that you have for me, then you cannot be my disciple. The idea behind renounce is the same idea as come. It's a present tense. So it's not just I renounce once. Jesus, you can have everything. And then I just kind of walk away and keep holding on to my stuff. The idea is, is that I'm continually putting before Jesus all that I have. My family, it's yours. My home, it's yours. My money, it's yours. My talent, it's yours. My life, it's yours. I'm willing to renounce it all in pursuit of you because you're greater and you're far more worth and value than anything I could ever esteem or have here on this earth. The crazy thing is, is over the past three, three and a half years that we've been here at Gospel City, I've seen men and women, I've seen families do this time and time again. I've seen folks that are willing to give their homes, give their lives, give their stuff so that somebody can know the gospel. I've seen VBS kids teach me about giving when they just do weird things to get money so that they can give it away to places like ARA. I've seen our own college students sacrificially give to support churches in Liberia that they'll never see, never meet, and never engage with. And let me just tell you, it's so refreshing to be around men and women that hold their stuff with an open hand. 
that are willing to renounce it all for the glory of Christ, that understand that what we've been given is his to use. But if I'm honest, this is something that I struggle with because I'm selfish. I don't know if you're selfish. You're probably not selfish. I'm probably a little more selfish than you are, right? That's my selfishness telling me I'm more selfish than you. I struggle with this because I'm selfish, because what I have is what I want. And how dare somebody ask me for it? And what Jesus is declaring here is that we need to shed distraction, recalibrate our minds, our hearts, our spirits to the gospel and help us recognize that Jesus is of far more value, far more worth than anything I could ever have. And that anything I have is his to use. What about you? Do you struggle with your selfishness? Do you struggle with distraction? Whether it be your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter, your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your own self. Are you allowing those things to exceed the affections that you should have for Jesus? Do you even have affection for Jesus? Do you prize him over the gifts that he has ultimately given you? The third characteristic that we see of a disciple is found in verses 34 and 35, and it's simply this, we should remain salty. Notice what it says. It says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus uses salt to characterize disciples all throughout the Gospels, most notably in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He tells us we're the light of the world, but we are also the salt of the earth. Salt has this flavor and preservation in a culture of spiritual and moral decay. He tells us that we are salt. So as we look at these last two verses today, I I want us to hear the warning that Jesus is giving us. And the warning is simply this. Don't lose your saltiness. Don't lose your saltiness. Be the salt that God has declared you to be as a disciple of his. Salt that has lost its taste is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away and discarded. Here in verse 34, when Jesus says salt has lost its taste, the phrase lost its taste literally means to become foolish. A disciple that has lost his saltiness is foolish. And hear me. My heart for you and for me is for Jesus to call me his disciple, not for Jesus to call me a fool. It's a warning to kingdom disciples, a declaration to stay the course, to continue being a flavorful and preserving force. And the reality is that if we have counted the costs of following Jesus, if we have shed distractions, not allowed distractions into our lives, then our saltiness will only increase. Like we should be dead sea level salt here is what we should be. If we consider what Jesus is calling us to, if we get rid of our distractions and focus on him as first and foremost in our lives. So for Gospel City this morning, my hope is this, is my hope that as we look at these characteristics of discipleship, as we consider the cost of discipleship, what I hope you see is that the gospel gives us a preserving message that must be shared through our words. It must be shared through our words. It must be embraced in our own hearts. And it must be seen in each and every action that we take.
It must. But the reality is, is that what Jesus is calling us to is impossible without surrender. It's just flat impossible. I cannot consider and count the cost. I cannot rid myself of distraction. I cannot be salt if I don't surrender myself to him. The process of surrender is a a process of progression in our lives. It's a process of relinquishing ourselves before the Lord and simply saying, I'm yours. Do what you will. And and here's what I, I hope for us this morning. I hope you'll hear the words of Jesus over any words I've spoken. I hope you'll hear what Jesus is saying. And here in a moment, as Pastor Micah comes, I'm, I'm gonna invite us to practice surrender. So it, if you've been around scripture any length of time or seen any war movie, you know that surrender, the universal sign, is a kneeling down before the conqueror hands behind our head and relinquishing all. As we are about to practice surrender, here's what I want to invite you to. I want to invite you to hear God's word. And I want to invite you to practice it. I want to invite you to surrender to Jesus. And to honestly, through prayer, consider and count the cost to ask him to show you the distractions that you are so quick to run to and to beg him to use you to be salt in this world. So I'm gonna invite you, if you're able, to kneel before the Lord. And in a moment of prayer, put before him what he has already declared is true that we must consider and count the costs. Father, your word is so true that each and every one of us has a cross that you've given us to bear. If we're followers of you, if we are your disciples, then Jesus, may we bear that cross with joy. Help us to take step after step after step coming after you. And allow us, Lord, to consider the cost and find you of far more worth than anything else. we can so quickly run to distractions. Lord, I pray that you would impress upon these men and these women the distractions that they run to. Whether it be husband or wife, son or daughter, brother, sister, mother, father, even our own selves, whatever it is, Lord. Father, we repent and turn to you, asking you, to rightly reign on our hearts because our affection for you, you've declared, should be far greater than our affections for anything or anyone else. 
Father, we surrender to you. We ask you, Lord, to help us be salt in this world. That as the gospel penetrates our hearts, how they would only increase the saltiness that we have. So that we're sorry. We're sorry for missed opportunities and missed moments. We're sorry for selfish thinking and selfish acting. Father, the biggest desire of a disciple's heart is to be called your disciple. But Father, so often we can be foolish. So we pray that you'd bring to our minds the foolishness of our hearts. And Lord, may we repent and turn away from that. For Lord, you are far more worth, of far more value than anything else. And Lord, I do pray that today would be a day where we would consider and count costs, where we would turn away from distraction and that we would embrace the salt you've called us to be, increasing in affection and desire for you. And may today not be a one-time occasion, but Lord, may it be the start of something that we do each and every day hereafter. So Father, we kneel before you, pleading that you would reign supreme on our hearts because you are more than enough. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.